Welcome to the Semi-Interesting Podcast, where we explore some of the unique legal issues in the global semiconductor industry. My name is Nathaniel Lusak. I'm an IP attorney at the law firm of Hodgson Russ and one of your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Morris. I'm an IP attorney and director of intellectual property and products at Pure Storage in Mountain View, California, and I am one of your hosts. Elizabeth and I are joined today by Cheryl Junk, uh, Associate Director for Intellectual Property Transactions at Dartmouth College. Our goal today is to try to pull the curtain back on tech licensing negotiations with universities and research institutes, really to drill down why I can't just pay you a bunch of money and walk away with all the IP. But before we get into our questions, I wanted to introduce Cheryl, or rather let Cheryl introduce herself. So Cheryl, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your work history? Well, Nathaniel and Liz, thank you very much for having me today. Um, my, again, my name is Cheryl Junker. I have been working in the technology transfer field since August of 2007. I am one of the people that I ended up in tech transfer without really planning on it. I think if you talk to a lot of tech transfer professionals, that tends to be um, a thing that happens to a lot of us because it is a field that really welcomes a lot of different backgrounds, people with business backgrounds, with scientific ones, and my particular one is a legal background. I started my career tech transfer at North Carolina State University. They were um, they were looking to fill in, in you know, a, very, a junior position at their office and they needed someone with a material science background, which was my technical background. And so um, I applied without really having a whole lot of hope that I would get this position. But having having now been in the field for quite some time, I realized that um, my chances were better than I realized because the technical expertise level, if you can find somebody with the one that you want, you will do a lot to make sure that they come to your office because finding the right people is, is really tricky. Um, so I was there for a few years. I worked primarily on... I, I work primarily in uh, in the field of engineering and then a lot of um, polymer chemistry. So I learned a lot about, you know, a lot of on-the-job learning about polymers. And then I worked for almost three years at uh, the Georgia Institute of Technology, where I got a lot more experience with medical imaging and things of that nature, um, spectroscopy type inventions, a lot more electrical engineering, which was never my strong suit, but I did I did my best. <laughs> and Georgia Tech was a great learning experience because while I was there, I also worked half-time licensing and half-time working on industry research contracts. So that was, I mean, a, a really, really vital part of my professional education was getting the opportunity to learn how companies view intellectual property matters, how we can work with them to try and get these research projects done while protecting intellectual property stances of the particular institution while at the same time allowing the research to actually go forward. So it's been a really helpful skill set to have. From there, I was at the University of Georgia for six years, which was a, a really a nice, stable place to work. It was that we didn't have a ton of turnover. I got to work with the, the engineering school there, which was brand new. They had only just been codified by the Georgia State Legislature to allow UGA to have their own engineering school. So I was working with a lot of very early stage faculty, which was a really a different, um, interesting challenge because the, you know they were all just getting their research projects and re and labs up off the ground and you know really getting at the ground level with those people. And then I started in March of 2020, the best time to start a new job. I moved from Georgia up to uh, up here to New Hampshire uh, to start working at Dartmouth. It was a great opportunity to. Um, you know, to kind of advance my career, technology transfer can be a very flat 
management structure. And so if you aren't, you know, sometimes you just want to stay and you're happy where you are. And Athens, Georgia was a great place to live. But in terms of career development, through no fault of anyone I worked with there, it just wasn't really going to happen. And so I was already an admitted attorney in New Hampshire because Nathaniel and I went to law school at the University of New Hampshire. And so I had ties to the area. And um, that's where we have, that's where we've been for almost three years now. It's the time has really flown. So, well, the time has really flown in your house for most well, of yeah, the Well, yeah, in some ways. <laughs> in some ways, it has. <laughs> uh, well, th- thank you. Thank you, Cheryl, for coming in and talking with us today and sharing your feedback because you've been not only across universities, but across industry sectors, including <laughs> touching on. Uh, when you were at Research Triangle, some of the material science and other yeah. semiconductor-related stuff. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, to sort of kick this off, would you give us a big picture of what the objective is for the hypothetical university? What <laughs> What is the university trying to get out of some of these research collaborations? Uh, why would you bother entering into it What besides, obviously, funding? Or maybe that is it. Maybe it is <laughs> just funding. Well, it's, it, I mean, it is definitely funding. I think any researcher would tell you uh, the vast majority of them. Some of them have more money than they can, they know what to do with, but that's a pretty rare occasion. A lot of times the, the impetus is to really develop those outside relationships. Sometimes the, the projects that the researchers are able to engage in when they work on industry related contracts are, of a much more specific and directed type. And I think for them, it's it's a, a different kind of a challenge. Certainly the funding is, is a big part of it, but being able to have those research challenges and be able to have graduate students who work on those research challenges. And then ideally, this and this happens pretty frequently, if it goes really well and the working relationship is good, those graduate students will then get hired on by the company. And then you have built up an additional research network where, you know, you've got more collaborators that you can work with. You have better industry contacts and an interesting project that you get to work on. Those are all of the, you know, the the positives that that come out of uh, an industry research relationship. Georgia Tech was particularly good at it. They had a, a really large, and I'm sure they still do, have a very large industry-sponsored research group that helps put all of these agreements in place. They really know how to do the negotiations and how to best protect the research outcomes as well as make it palatable for the industry sponsors. Some of the, when I was there, there were easily the biggest deal that I've ever done was when I was at Georgia Tech. And it, I barely can even call it a deal because it was a long-term research relationship with a very large company. They had a great PI on either side, a primary investigator on either side who knew each other and knew exactly what they needed to do. And everything was just done by task orders. So they would have a new statement of work. We're going to just add it as an amendment to our existing agreement. And in the course of a week, I signed off on $3.5 million of additional research that was all going to be funneled through this particular agreement. It took zero effort on my part because the researchers and you know, the the relationship that had already been built up between the two institutions was so good and so long lasting. On the flip side of that, if one of those PIs leaves and there's not a champion within either side of the table, those relationships can fall apart almost instantaneously. 
So it does take, it felt easy at the time, but it takes a lot of work to keep those relationships in a good place where they can continue and be useful more than just once or to a place where you don't have to renegotiate the same industry contract over and over and over again. Cheryl, can you explain what a PI is a little more? That's not a term I had heard before. So I'm interested to understand where they fit into the ecosystem. So a PI stands for primary investigator. And that is really just shorthand that industries and particularly um, colleges and universities used to describe the lead researcher on a particular project. So the PI is going to be the one who is in charge of the lab, who's in charge of the graduate students, and who's going to be doing the vast majority of the reporting back and forth between the two parties during the research project. So they're not an independent person making things happen. They are a person from one or the other side of the deal table that's really driving it. Yeah, exactly. They're definitely the driving forces, usually. And you said earlier, I wanted to like dig in on this a little bit more, that it's really beneficial for the universities to, I guess I would say, eventually embed people um, who were graduate students into the companies. And as a company person, I understand the benefit from the company in feeling like we're going to have this relationship with this university and we're hoping it leads to good recruiting, right? You know, we're hoping to get this top talent and, you know, somebody we can sort of pseudo vet ahead of time. Absolutely. Um, what is like the real specific benefit that the university is getting? Is Are those the people that tend to become PIs or what is it that the university is hoping for there? Yeah, sometimes they definitely do become PIs within with, uh, you know, on the industry side. I know a lot of researchers who still work with graduate students that who know who have long since left particular universities. But because of those relationships they built up, it really is a level of trust. And I think sometimes even more than trust, it is knowing that someone on the other side is going to know exactly what you're talking about on a technical level. Um, As patent attorneys and people who deal with patents all the time, we know how difficult it is to attain a level of, of experience and understanding in very specific areas of research. And so knowing that you can call up a student who graduated 10 years ago and who has still been in a very in a related field and has followed the developments and know that you could talk to them about a research project and hopefully and possibly get some funding. I think from the PI standpoint, that is really, really important to them if they are interested in doing industry research. Similar things happen between researchers who do a lot of collaborative work with other institutions, especially or with national labs. It's it's all very similar, you know. No one likes to admit that so much of life is who you know, but it is. I'm on this podcast because Nathaniel and I know each other. And researchers often do similar projects because of who they know and who they feel comfortable working with. So it's a, it's about that level of comfort and about that level and definitely about the level of expertise that people bring on either side. Yeah, I think probably especially in um, the world we live in right now where so many people are working from home, you know, because of COVID and because of just how things have changed, that trust level, you know, is is really critical. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, you know, we're all a little socially awkward these days. So <laughs> if, you're, if you know someone, it makes it a little bit easier. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, I'm going to change gears just a little bit. I had a question for you. So can you give us an idea of what kinds of provisions universities are 
really stuck on? You know, what kinds of things are they never going to change? No matter how much you, know, you you threaten, you know, or ask nicely, you know, what are those pieces that the university needs to have in order for it to be successful for the university? Right. The things that we have to have are terms that and they really fall into two buckets, terms that are there to protect the researchers, both the, the primary investigator and graduate students. So we really can't give on anything that's going to be protective of them and on the terms that are going to be broadly protective for the particular institution. So those are going to be things like indemnification and limited liability and the warranties that we can give or not give in most cases on the research that's being done. So, you know, there are certain promises that a research institution, especially in a, in a nonprofit stance or even more having worked at three state institutions, there are things that as a state school simply cannot agree to. And so those are the things that I certainly appreciate that's frustrating for the industry side. It can be frustrating for us as well because we do want to get these deals done. But when somebody says, well, we can't possibly indemnify you, why not? Because we are not, you know, we are not in the business of selling anything. You know that this was early stage research that at a certain point, Dartmouth or NC State or UGA no, was no longer to be, going to be involved in the development. Why wouldn't you indemnify us? And that's, you know, that's the discussion that we then have to have. In terms of protecting the researchers, it's provisions like the grant back of a research license to Dartmouth College with, with you know, the retained rates that we're going to that we're going to keep, and say that even though we have done this research and, you know, we might have to. There might be licensing and optioning that comes down down the line. Dartmouth will always have the ability to continue using this research, these results at its at the universe at the college, and allow that research to grow. As well as the other really big one is publication. If it's a grad, especially where there's a grad student involved, they are going to be the person with the least power in this negotiation. They might not even really know that it's happening. So it is our job as people who work on these types of agreements to make sure that they are going to be able to publish their research results. And usually when we do these terms, it's going to say the industry sponsor will have a certain period of time where they get to review any proposed publications. They can request that any confidential information that might have inadvertently been added can be taken back out. They can request delays in order to get a patent filed. There are things that they're allowed to do, but fundamentally, we do not grant industry sponsors the right to say yay or nay on a publication because it's just it's just too important for both the researchers who have to keep publishing and for graduate students whose thesis projects and things like that might be dependent on this industry research that they're doing. Instead of leaving you really any IP rights, I mean, can't we just, as a corporation, just give you more money? If we're only borrowing the researchers in the laboratory for six or eight months, can't we just increase the dollar amount? Because if we let, if we leave some residual rights with the university and you're publishing on it, you're going to keep working on it. And then I might have to deal with you again in another year or two. I know. I know. And so there's two big reasons. And the first is the Bayh-Dole Act, which was passed in 1980, which is for people who aren't familiar with it, which is the whole reason that technology transfer exists as a profession. Because prior to the Bayh-Dole Act, research that was developed with federal funding belonged to the federal government. And the federal government is not exactly equipped to translate out new research. Things were just getting stuck. 
And so after a lot of debate, the Bayh-Dole Act was put in place, which then gives title to research that was developed with federal money at colleges and universities and national labs. It is owned by that entity that where the work was done. And so a lot of tech transfer and a lot of contracting has grown up around the idea that we are the stewards of intellectual property that was developed you know, in these institutions that the federal government allows us to keep ownership of, but that we have to promise that we're then going to try and translate it out. Um, however that type of commercial translation happens, that is that is what we've been asked to do. And while industry contracting is a separate thing, that you know, that mindset still carries over, that we are trying to, that we are the stewards of the intellectual property, that we expect that in the United States we expect ownership. Um, and that we are going to try and do the best to make sure that the partner that we're working with has what they need to move it forward. But the intellectual property is an asset of that particular institution. And I think the, the biggest takeaway here is what we don't want to have happen is that something great is developed, but because of the terms of the industry research contract, it gets stuck in a company who wants to put it on the shelf so nobody else can use it. And while it seems counterintuitive that that might happen if they've already paid for the research, I've seen it happen. And I've seen those arguments that we, we don't really feel the need to um, to use this at all and we'll just license it and keep paying you guys and then never use it. And that's the last thing we want. Or I mean, even sometimes to the extent that the companies who license things don't want to publish that the relationship even exists. So that's hard for us as tech transfer offices who and sponsored research offices who want to be able to tell the stories about what a particular institution has developed. And so that's why we have tried to have as much protective language in our agreements as we can to say, we know that you guys would much rather just buy it from us. We'd just rather buy the research. But it, you know, it is in the United States especially, it is very much considered an asset of a particular institution. Now, there is one other aspect to that, which is federal bond financed buildings. And I don't know if this is an issue that either of you have ever run into, but a lot, a lot of buildings on college campuses across the country were paid for, at least either in whole or in part, with federal bond financing. And if you take that bond financing, which lasts, I can't say I know the term off the top of my head, but it's somewhere around 20 years, these long-term bonds to help you pay for your expansion projects, and then you want to do research in those buildings. Federal research is fine, but there is a revenue, an IRS revenue ruling, which says that if you are doing industry research funding or really getting any industry money in, private money into a federally, a publicly funded building, basically, there's a very small amount of that funding that you can take and at the same time, give that company preferential terms. So what that functionally means is that if you are going to offer automatic license terms, saying you you automatically get a license to what we've developed without any understanding of what the value might be, or you say you get, you just get to own it outright, those are preferential terms that a college or university would never give anybody else. They would certainly not do it with the federal government. And so by doing that, by making a lot of those agreements in a federally bond finance building, you endanger your federal bond financing. And if you get audited and find out that that sort of thing has been happening, um, you can lose your bond finance status, which means you have to repay it all at once. 
So it is something that we take really, really seriously, especially in cases where, uh, you know, there's been a huge building project, um, Georgia Tech in particular. It's been a while, it's been quite a while since I worked there, but Georgia Tech in particular, it had a huge building boom in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so they had a lot of those types of buildings where industry research just wasn't it wasn't that it wasn't possible. It was just that we couldn't grant any preferential terms or the civil volume of what we would have been expected to do would have really endangered the status um, for the for the institution. Now, I will say Europe is a very different is a very different situation because so much of the funding, so many of the funding arms and how industry is funded, especially in countries like France and Germany, is very different than the United States. And so Overseas industry contracting is a completely a completely different animal that I am not as well versed in. But it's it's a, the expectation of ownership is much stronger um, in other countries than it is in the United States. I just want to jump back to this building thing because this is it's a new thought for me. So, should companies or people that you know could fund be wary of giving enough money to put their name on a building in that it might hurt them further down the road with the relationships that they are really intending to be uh encouraging because of this building it's less about you know like big donations and more about the intellectual like trying to get preferential industry excuse me, preferential intellectual property terms. So you can donate as much as you want. You can have your name splashed all over a building. But if the rest of that building was federally bond financed, they're still not going to be able to just give away. It, it feels like giving away the IP, basically selling the intellectual property that gets developed. Those things are still going to be problems if there are bond financed buildings. And most buildings are bond financed buildings. Especially um I can't say I certainly can't say most, but at a, a, a lot of state schools, that is the the more likely route to have gotten funding is through federal bonds. Yep. And then that affects everybody. What no, no matter whose name's on the building. It because, does. It, it does. Okay. Um and interestingly, this could be an anecdote that's not even really accurate anymore. But they also have to to be careful, like if they're gonna put a cafe in one of those buildings because it is technically a money-making enterprise that isn't really expected under federal bond financing, but, you know, people need coffee. So <laughs> that's sometimes that's, you know, there's a little bit of a safe harbor. There's about 10% that you can use in each building, but it, it is, they definitely have to really think about it. And um, the real estate offices and the sponsored programs offices work closely together to keep an eye on those buildings and, you know, what their statuses are. So that's why at Purdue, like all of the, it was just snack machines in the engineering building. And I had to like go to someplace else to get really good coffee. Huh? Possibly. It, it might just be that when we went to college, they didn't care about student comfort as much. <laughs> Entirely possible. possibility too. It just seems like there are all of these specific rules, uh, you know, buildings and and bonds and and um, other stuff you, you talked about earlier that would make it really challenging for these professors that just want to do this research and want to get it funded um, to make that happen. So why don't the professors just sort of start up their own little side business, um, you know, make their own entity that isn't the university, but maybe that still somehow is, you know, I don't know, buying lab time or something to get around the issue that the university is trying to protect and they'll maybe get them what they want and and yeah. 
put them in a position where they can give the industry what they're really asking for. The problem there is with co- is conflict of interest because while startup companies have become much much more popular, the problem will always will still exist that if a company is being spun out of the uni- with using university intellectual property, they still have to make sure that that isn't interfering with their the rest of their business because you know it's it's about who's going to be working on those projects if it's for if if it's a project for Dr. X's lab that's federally funded you know the conflicts aren't really there but let's say Dr. X has a company and Dr. X wants to fund back into his own his or her own lab who's going to be the graduate student working on that is their boss their research boss or the company boss so there, when faculty do startup companies, um, they there are a lot of a lot of rules that they have to follow to ensure that they're not mis you know misusing funding. They're not misusing um, lab space. They really aren't allowed to use college lab space unless there are some very very specific exceptions to that. But even in those cases, there has to be another primary investigator who is in charge of those projects. So that it's not the same person in charge on the side of the company and on the side of the college or university. It, it's because it, you can endanger your federal funding. You can commit literal crimes that you can get arrested for. Um, so you, it is. It's really the you know startup companies may, are a wonderful avenue of getting very early stage technologies out of a college or university, um, but. A, Certainly not every single time. The majority of the time, the the researcher will start the company, but then if it's going in a, if it's going well and they've gotten maybe some very early stage grant funding, then they can go out and find a seasoned entrepreneur to help them come on as the CEO, and that person can handle the business side of things. And a lot of times, the professors maintain a lot of activity in terms of being um, scientific advisors and stay on boards of directors and things like that. But they 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 don't really want to leave the institution. They wanted to make sure their company got spun out so their research got used, but they don't necessarily want to leave. Um, sometimes they certainly do, and that's you know that happens pretty frequently as well. But mo- I would say the majority want to stay within their labs and continue working with students and continue doing the fundamental research along with the more translational research that happens in a startup company. Did I answer that question? I know there it's kind of a multi pronged issue so it's just something i remember dealing with when working with the university that it wasn't just the university it was the university and an entity that the professors had started separately interesting and so the relationship between those three entities was fascinating to me (laughs) um like what why did they make this (laughs) what were they trying to accomplish yeah you know that they Felt like they needed it to at all, right? Yeah, the big answer is that it was, you know, most of the time, at least at Dartmouth, still, it is there was a big chunk of federal funding. Somebody had an R01 grant that they've been working on for 10 years, and they've got five or six or 10 disclosures that they've submitted to tech transfer and that we've tried to, you know, will have tried to market. But the problem is that, and this is the, this is probably the biggest change I've seen since I started, you know, 15 years ago. Companies, Existing companies are very unwilling or very scared of taking on super, super early stage research, which is what's going to come out of a college or university. That's just the nature of it. 
we've unless it's software, you're not going to have any off-the-shelf technology out of out of a college or university. And so the safest place seems to be doing a startup company. So and it works out, you know, it, it does work out in a lot of ways because schools have realized how much more popular this is. They have developed some, you know, some starting license templates that are going to be more geared toward startup companies as opposed to an existing company. We know how to work with the attorneys, you know, on the questions that are important to startup companies and try and get those spun out in a timely manner so that they can access federal startup funds, um, both the SBIR and STTR programs through the federal governments. Those are enormously important for providing gap funding for these startup companies so that they don't kind of fall into that valley of death between federal funding and angel investment and you know that, that nasty little V place in the middle where it's hard to get the funding to keep the development going. So all of those things you know, come out and are available to a startup company. And a lot of times colleges and universities will have additional programming and additional support staff to help the faculty be in startups be able to, you know, access that funding and understand how to apply for it. So we don't just do startup companies and then push them off a cliff and say, you've got to fly a little bird. <laughs> we try and provide additional support as the company is getting off the ground. And then, you know, depending on how the license was structured, perhaps if the college has an equity stake and the company has done well and gets bought out for a lot of money, you know, a big equity portion of that buyout will come back to the college for a reinvestment in um, additional research funding. So in the best case scenario, it's a great sort of circular, you know, a circular process of research investment, discovery, licensing, payout, more research investment. And then it just keeps going around in that circle so that people can continue doing really interesting research that we can get out and translate to products, translate to more jobs. Those are it sometimes it almost feels like a little, you know, it's a little pie in the sky and, you know, it's kind of, I don't mean to be goody goody, but it really does feel good when you know that something that you've worked on and helped get licensed actually is out there getting used. And I know that it's really important to the faculty as well. They, you know, they've, they've been working on these things for a very long time and they want to see them get used. So I guess then everyone hopes that the little startup chugs along until it is uh, ready for acquisition or gets trapped in the valley of death and is picked over. And uh, either way, you yeah. end up with preferential rights to the IP <laughs> yeah, that you we were would, hoping we to get in the first place. Yeah, we certainly prefer it gets a lovely big acquisition. Plus, the other thing is that means that that's the way that the, the other researchers get money. So you, Dartmouth has our, at Dartmouth in particular, our royalty sharing with um, our researchers is 50%. So royalties come in and a full 50% is shared with the faculty and um, graduate student researchers. And so we want things to be successful because that's how they're getting paid back here that sometimes it's a lot of money, sometimes it isn't, but it's still, you know, it's still a big part of what the promise is between an institution and the, and the researchers is that we are, that we appreciate the effort here we're going to pay for the patents. We're going to handle all of these legal issues and you guys keep researching. And if there are royalties that come back in, we're going to share them with you. As we wrap this up, I know Elizabeth and I threw out some somewhat zany, one-sided, <laughs> I'm not sure the best adjective examples in terms of negotiating strategies. But as we end this episode, can you share sort of the 
the craziest requests that you've ever had in the negotiation or just the strangest? The strangest one to handle was I was doing, it ended up being a two party, like two different companies wanted the same stuff, the same, the same technology. It was a platform technology. They both wanted to have it for their startup companies. But so did the the researcher. The researcher had his own idea of what he wanted to do with it, but he wasn't ready to start up the company yet. However, we couldn't license this to the other two unless he was on board. So what we ended up doing was a co-exclusive license so that these two parties got exclusive rights. One of the companies had one more field of use than the other because they got there first and they stuck their stake in the ground for their for their one field of use. So they had one field and then a couple others. The other company had the rest of them, but not that one particular field. And both of them agreed. Both of those companies wanted this technology badly enough that they agreed that if the researcher wanted to start his company within, I think, three years of signing the licenses, he got the opportunity to do it and he would get to be a a third co-exclusive licensee. So we got these things done, but the biggest nightmare, honestly, was the repayment of patent costs. You asked earlier what the what you know we can't budge on repayment of patent costs <laughs> because the crazy thing is licensees never want to pay it. They always want to say no. You why should we have to pay these? You pay, you spent too much on patents. It's like <laughs> you know how much patents cost. <laughs> like come on here, you have you know you have to repay these costs. But when it's co exclusive or when it's a non exclusive license. The licensees have a much more reasonable argument saying, why should I repay all of them if you can just license this to another party? So that one was really tricky. Um, yeah, that was probably my trickiest one. I don't know that. I think I have been lucky in that I work with with engineering stuff. And so it's not that we don't have, you know, very valuable platforms, um, especially when we're working in a startup space. But the technologies I work on rarely have the starting value as like, a drug formulation. So my friends who've worked more on the life sciences side have create much crazier stories than I do because the money is just so much bigger on their side. Hopefully the crazy factor stays low and you <laughs> in the future are able to convince your co-exclusive licensees <laughs> one through infinity to equally share whatever patent costs you have incurred. So please, please um, pay them back. <laughs> they sit on our books and it drives our finance manager crazy. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Cheryl. Um, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This was fun. It was great to meet you, Cheryl. Great to meet you too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Semi-Interesting Podcast. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. And if you enjoyed the episode, we always appreciate five-star reviews. While we talked about legal issues, none of the information shared during this podcast is intended to be legal advice. If you have any questions about information we cover or ideas for a future episode, feel free to contact me or the other attorneys at Hodgson Russ. You can find contact information at www.hodgsonruss.com.